Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now everybody welcome to another edition of creators outlet right here on the outright geekery network and we're joined by a couple of creators from over the pond as they like to say uh straight out of london they've been working on uh the john carpenter line vortex 2.0 gentlemen welcome hello there thanks for having us hey so uh why don't you introduce yourself to everybody and uh, give us a little bit of background on, on how you got to uh, where you are now in the creative world. Let's, let's do it this way. Uh, this this is Mike. He's the writer on Vortex 2.0. Uh, Mike's uh, approximately 5'11", pushing 6 foot, I'd say. <laughs> uh, handsome, uh, faster than me, and uh, he lives in London, and I live as far away from him as possible. Over to you, Mike. Sums it up, yeah. Um, Dave, um, b below me, literally lives in a basement. Um, we we actually went to school together, weirdly enough, um, and then we lost touch for like eighteen years, something like that. And a mutual friend got back in touch, and we we reconnected. And uh, I was already writing by then, and Dave was doing art, and it just seemed natural that we we try and put those uh, skills together. And we started working on a few things over here, and um, one thing led to another. We ended up in uh, John and Sandy's orbit, and uh, they asked us to do a few things for them. So we, we've done a, a bunch of shorts for them on their um, Tales for Halloween Night series, and uh, we did a book uh, a couple of years ago now called Vortex, and we just about got to the end of uh, Vortex 2.0. Yeah, one one more issue left. As I was, yep. I was, I was telling Mike, uh, I I lost count of how many times I I yelled out "Holy fuck!" Uh, <laughs> flip, flipping <laughs> the pages because she, she sent me like uh, the last four issues. <laughs> Sweet to catch up on, and I'm like, yeah, I can yeah. jump in, and I can jump in in the middle of the story, and you know, you know, fig, fig, figure a little bit out for myself, so I kind of know what's yeah. going on, and. 
Well, it, it was designed. Read, it was designed exactly like that. Yeah, I think I read the first. You you, you don't really have to have read Vortex, uh, although there is a, a really nice uh, trade paperback of that now. But uh, um, you can jump in really, um, and and no spoilers. Obviously, it's a nice happy ending. No one dies in any of my books. <laughs> yeah, Everyone's it's really perfectly happy. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice and bloodless. <laughs> I think that's I think that's part of the joy of comics, though. You it, you pick something up and you're in, and it's in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just as interested to go back and see how you got there as you are to continue the story. So that's kind of the nice thing about people jumping on halfway through. I think. Yeah, I, I think it's it's great. There's like a lot of uh, you know smaller smaller press and indie books are making like quite an impact. Like this, like in 2020. The indie scene seemed to blow up, and uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of pros. Um, they're all you know. All the pros are all freelance. Yeah. So they like a bunch of them like wandered over and just started. You know, why should I ask a publisher permission to do this project? I'm just going to do yeah. it on my own. And and they launch on and um, one of the uh, one of the coolest things that they've been doing it that I've seen in projects is. You know, for a for a nominal fee, they they they'll put you on a cover of, of a book, and it'll be like a one of one thing, or yeah, yeah. or they'll draw you into the book. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I've got to admit to uh, sneaking a couple of mates in there, um, just so I can say they were they were killed in the John Carpenter universe. Um, <laughs> it doesn't cost much; it's only ten thousand dollars to get your face on a panel. Um, if anybody's <laughs> interested, uh, just don't tell Sandy or John. Yeah, they're not going to watch this, even though I tagged them in it. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, nice play. <laughs> I think one of the nice things as well is that uh, although Dave and I are both kind of um, British and we've, we've done British books and indie books, um, working with Storm King and John and Sandy is that they, they kind of team us up with, with some of the bigger names that have been doing this for forever. So we, we've got Tim, Tim Bradstreet doing the covers, which is just phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And uh, our our letter Janice is is I mean she's worked on everything, I mean yeah. talking yeah. to Janice about the stuff she's worked on is just mind blowing, uh, yeah. and she continues to work on that on that stuff. I don't, I don't know how she uh, she manages to get it all done, but um, it, it 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 helps us I think because we know that we're we're working with kind of um, you know real professionals. It, it's we kind of we got to up our game. You can't half ass it. Yeah, listen. Uh... Hooked me up with uh, Guy Dorian Senior uh, mm. last year, so we had a yeah. we we had a we had a nice chat, and uh, also Frank yeah. from Heavy Metal, and you know, so you know, it's been a it's been fun for me because when I you know if this wasn't going if we weren't having these you know what are we twenty twenty chapter two now uh, if this wasn't going on I'd be going to as many comic cons as I could. Yeah. And yeah. I don't go wandering around to like the celebrity part of it. I go in, I'm, I'm there for the comic. So I'm there in artist alley. I'm talking to, to the illustrators, the writers. So now I get to do this, uh, from the comfort of my home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I can, you know, I can, I can, you know, either, either, either sneak in a nice cold one on the side or just have a cup of coffee. Yeah. With nothing else in it, and uh, you know <laughs> what time it is. <laughs> well, it's four o'clock someplace. Hey, it's four o'clock here. 
Yeah, that's why I've got this uh, bottle of wine right here. Huh? <laughs> Something with bubbles. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this uh, this whole remote thing. I mean, I was sort of geared towards it anyway. I, I used to work in the games industry and uh, commute into like the local city and stuff, and it was never for me. Ten years of sitting on a, a cramped train where you can't sit down and, you know, it's just full of bodily gas. Mm. It's not for me. So as soon as I, I got the opportunity to sort of jump out and uh, work from home and manage my own time, you know, I, I mean, Mike got me that opportunity with some like previous work that we did. So uh, even if uh, you know COVID wasn't battering us to death in terms of lockdown and stuff like that, uh, I'd still be at home. I mean, it's not much of a change for me. I don't go out anyway. Yeah, use me. I haven't used my legs for five years. I'm not sure I've got any anymore, but. A lot, a lot yeah. of creators, uh, a lot of creators are like, well, it just gives me more time to work on stuff and, and perfect the uh, things I'm doing. Oh, Liz wants to know what game you worked on. Oh, um, basically, I, I worked on like um, the, the marketing for games. So we'd talk to people like Capcom UK and uh, uh, what's the other one who did uh, Red Dead. Um, you know, I mean, Rockstar, that's the name. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and we'd we'd come up with the marketing campaign that would sell those games and then do like the covers and stuff like that. So it was purely artwork on our part. Um, so there's a few Resident Evil ones and um, uh, Dead Rising. Dead Rising 2 was one of the main ones I did. Uh, managed to sneak myself in on the cover as a cop with uh, his brains being half eaten. Um, it's one of my nice little claims to fame. Gets me in a lot of doors, that. Um, <laughs> draw, you, but, um, draw yourself into the covers of the video games. Yeah, I did it wherever I could. I think I had myself puking on another one on a, some kind of fairground ride. Again, with my brains exposed, I must have, you know, something inbuilt to enjoy that. Um, it was fun. You, you got to look at a lot of uh, very disturbing internet imagery for reference when doing zombie games. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, it all goes in, and it's all stocked away in the library, ready to work on John's stuff. Yeah. Thankfully, there, yeah. Well, I mean, Vortex is is a nice romantic comedy with hardly any death or destruction, or, or so you, you don't need any any of that stuff. Today. It's just yeah. flowers and, and dancing mostly. Just all beautiful people and coffee houses. <laughs> oh, I love coffee houses. They kick me out, but you know, it is one of the fun things, though, because Dave and I now have worked together for quite a few years, so we we've kind of got shorthand. And uh, the few times I work with someone else, there's a lot more back and forth trying to explain exactly what, what I need. And um, Dave and I kind of grew up watching the same stuff. So our, our references are, tend to be very similar anyway. Um, but I also know I can I can ask Dave to draw the most disgusting things that I can think of. And he manages to do them in a kind of beautiful way, if that makes sense. Um, oh. Like the, the imagery he comes up with, is it's not... It's not just gore for the sake of gore. It's it's like there's there's always like just the angles you pick. Or I'm fascinated by the, that actually. Because the, there's a there is a um, I was listening to I listened to another podcast over here which deals with the uh, indie comic creators uh, in the UK, uh, the Awesome Comics podcast. Oh yeah. Uh, they were just talking about this type of thing um, recently. This sort of unwritten. Um, like the rules to reading comics, <clears throat> you know, like uh, you don't know you know them, but you know them because you've you've been around them since you were a kid. It's like mm -hmm. trying to. Well, my wife learned to swim when she first came over here from Japan, and it was the oddest thing to have to take apart how you swim. 
and tell somebody else something that you do instinctively and naturally. And it's I, I find it's quite similar with comics. It's very difficult to tell somebody else how you choose the angle in a panel. Like Mike, for example, will write um, two people are conversing in a panel. This one's got a facial expression. Um, and I've, I've found my journey going through comics and, and learning how to put a page together, I'm still doing it. I'm still learning now, like years down the line, that you know I have to think about the room. I have to think where everybody is in the room. I have to think how the next page is going to go. If someone's going to leave the room dramatically, how am I going to get them to leave the room? How am I going to make sure that the, the reader's eye will follow them? And there was a little, um, a little documentary on Disney Plus. Uh, I think it's uh, it's only about like 30 minutes or something about Dan Slott and his day, sort of like using the Marvel method, writing and handing mm-hmm. things over to the artist and then getting it back and working on that. And he was saying stuff like how everybody adds to something. Now, there are times where I've drawn something and I'll hand it back to Mike and say, we actually need to change something here to make this work because the only visual way I can deal with it, um, the the way I can process it, means that what you've written needs to be broken up or or something. But Dan Slott said something about the letterer as well. As soon as you bring the letterer in, it's 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 incredible how much it ties everything together. Um, everything that Mike's worked on, everything that I've worked on, everything that Pete, my brother, who does the colouring, everything that we've all put together, still looks like the separate bits until Janice drops it all in. And there's a rhythm to how she does that too, how your eye is going to go around the page. And we all know this because we've all read comics since we were kids. But if you get someone, I've got friends who don't read comics and they genuinely don't know how to go down a page they don't know where to look next um i I, if i want to test my work by showing it to somebody who has no idea how to read a comic i've got a couple of those mates and i'll pass it to them and if they can make sense of it then hopefully everybody can you know Mm. but there is an there is that unwritten language um that i don't think a a few writers have, have, have done that was it scott scott mcleod is it did the deconstruction of like comics and stuff I never remember the name of his book. I'm probably going to get crucified for that. But uh, that that sort of like unwritten thing, we've all got it, I think. Yeah, and there's there's a there's a way to go about it, and I mean, you learn it at like like at the age of like four or five, as you're like you know, okay, skipping over the big words that you don't understand, and, and just stick to the little ones when you're like four years yeah. old, and. Uh, I used to skip the narration boxes too because I'm like I don't want to read that much. And, well, but, you know they're like, yeah. yeah. But you uh, you figure it out when you're little, and you, like I don't even think about that. Well, if you, I mean, one question I, I should I should have asked you this ages ago. I never seem to get around to it, but the way you've worked in the past is have you found it like? massively different to how you work on comics in terms of you know working on script writing and stuff like that um not not really i mean i mean my my background was um tv and film scripts um it it's a slightly different uh feel to how you put it together but it's also different in that when you sit down and learn how to write a tv script or a movie script there are a lot of rules there's there's a certain way these things have to look mm-hmm. um 
there isn't really that with, with comics. I, I've read so many comic scripts and some of them have, have got the, the tiniest amount of detail in them for, for the artist. And then you've got like an Alan Moore script from the 80s and, and it's like a novel, the amount of stuff he's asking to get into a panel. Um, and just the formatting, every, everything's different. Everyone seems to just make it up in their own way. Um, and now there's enough people online sharing scripts that I think it, it's starting to get into more of a, well, this is how they're supposed to look. But to be honest, as long as, as, long as the artist um, you know, gets the implication of what you're trying to get across. Um, I, I kind of streamlined it for Dave. What I find working with other people is I have to put a little bit more detail in sometimes, or or it it uh, it, it gets away from us a little bit more. Um, but th there's not a whole lot of difference, to be honest, b between the way that that I would write a, a, a TV or a, a, a movie scene um, that, than how I'm asking you to draw something. Um, mm. It's the same thing that I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be asking a. You don't ask the director, or you don't tell the director for a TV or a film script to, and you're going to put the camera here and you're going to position it because that's their job. Mm. You you are you are throwing enough information in front of them so that they can get an idea in their head and then they work out exactly how they're going to you know block it and shoot it. And I think that's exactly what you do because I do have a version in my head of of how something's going to look, but nine times out of ten you will make it better than how I imagined it to be. Um, and again, going, going back to Tim, who, do, who does our, our covers, he's the one that I probably have the least interaction with because I just see the covers when they're done. And he manages to read um, an issue in script form without seeing any of Dave's work. And he will find what he thinks is the key element of that issue, and that will become the cover. And he nails it every time. Um and it, it, if, if I was to try and suggest it, well, I mean, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't try and tell Tim. <laughs> I think the central theme of this issue is this, and you should put it on the cover. He just picks it out, and, and, it, and it works. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it works amazing. And, and so is yours. The interiors on this book are, like, mind-blowing. Oh, thanks, man. Um, yeah, look at my I ability. Well, I, I always... to, uh... Sorry, Mike. I was just going to say, uh, observe my ability to... Uh be terrible at taking compliments oh shucks <laughs> but uh thanks anyway but, well, it's very i think i mean one of the things i do do with dave is i always try every issue to give him enough space to get kind of the the the, the big full page moments that 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 you need um but myself. even with that stuff <laughs> even with that stuff though you know dave will sometimes come back to me and say actually we, we need to break this up a little bit and 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 find a slightly different rhythm and, and pick out a different element that then becomes that whether it's a hero shot or a big moment where you turn the page and someone's head's exploding or yeah. um so it, it, there's, it, there's also like just going off from what mike said there sorry mike um it, it's it's nice that um we know that at the other end of the the chain when everything is reaching sandy and john um that there's enough trust from them in what we do for them to basically say listen just get on with what you're doing don't get me wrong. Everybody puts eyes on the work at the end of the day to check over what we've done, and mm -hmm. um, you know all of us have a, have an input in that way. And it's kind of nice that we all do. There may be something that my brother Pete's really good at spotting. You know, a, there was a character in the first trade, and he's got a scar on his head, and he gets the scar in the the second issue. And I missed the scar off every single time I drew him. And I thought, how can I keep doing this? It's it's just it's, it's psychotic, but. I'd get my brother like giving me a knock. Uh, he's, there's no, there's no scar, Dave. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. But um, it, it, 
if everyone's got eyes on it, it's kind of nice knowing you're part of a team who's looking out for the others. And when that comes right down from the top, when that comes right down from Sandy and John, who are the, the guys who are putting the book out at the end of the day, uh, and they've got trust in us to to be malleable with it, um, they're happy with... They, they get the script off Mike first. That's the first thing they see. But by the time the book gets to them, there may be like all kinds of changes. We've added pages in the past. We've taken them away in the past. Um added panels, taken away panels, introduced text, whatever. And they're always cool with it because they know it serves the story. They know that as we're making yeah. it, we may find something in the story that we think, you know what, this would look really good if it was a splash page or this doesn't need to do that or we need to get something on the turn of the page or something. And they're great at that, at just letting us get on with it. <laughs> Who's that shouting, that bloody scar? <laughs> oh, I know that is. <laughs> 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 there's a there's a good example of, of exactly that because the the way the process works with with John and Sandy is uh, you, you've got to go right back to the the beginning of this before um, before I start writing anything is is the conversation with John and Sandy about what what it is we're going to do and um, going very all the way back to the, before the first Vortex book um, we were talking uh, about some of uh, John's influences and sandy's influences when we went all the way back to the the 50s and one of the things that the first book was supposed to have in it was um a kind of nod to the old tv show the fugitive that was you know remade so well with harrison ford mm -hmm. um but part of that initial conversation was the story of a guy who's kind of he's framed and he's on the run and um by the time we got to writing the book and and getting the scripts ready for dave that element had, had not only become so small it had fallen away and it isn't really in there anymore but it was part of the original genesis of the story um and it was one of the reasons we wanted to do vortex 2 was to kind of reconnect that thread because it was something we were really excited about but as the, the original story of vortex developed we kind of laid some of the groundwork for that but we brought in an investigator who was then supposed to be chasing the guy and they ended up teaming up against the the big bad in it um it went in a direction that that wasn't on paper in those original discussions with john and sandy and they just trusted us to to take that story where it needed to go and then when we were talking about whether we needed to do a sequel that was one of the reasons that we wanted to do it we just wanted to pick that thread up that earlier idea of putting a good guy in a position where people think he may be a bad guy and seeing what that did to the, the to the, all the other elements that were going on with you know the, the the monsters and the spaceships and the explosions um but all of the stuff that i work on with john and sandy comes from that we we go all the way back to the stuff that that got john excited um you know when when uh, he, he was a kid in the cinema watching a movie for the first time so um you know that's all part of the fun of putting the books together yeah when i was when i was reading it today uh yesterday and today uh well more so today like the last couple uh six and seven i read today and a couple of scenes in it i was just like i go this is this is john carpenter's thing in space <laughs> yeah 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 you know but it's, it, there's no there's no getting away from the fact that we know we're working for and with john carpenter so it, it's his name that is on the front of the book we've got to live up to that We've, we've got to do as best we can. Um, I get that sense from what Mike passes over. I try and infuse it with what I do. Pete will think, 
you know, what what kind of coloration are we going to need on this scene? Because it's going to be horrible. Do we do we go nice and bright, or do we is it all purple or something like that? And John's an influence on that as well. Everything he's done has got that visual element, so it feeds what we do. And I don't know about you, but I've lost count of how many times I've sat and watched the thing. So it, it's embedded, you know. It, it, there's no getting away from the fact that he he is influencing us, and now we're trying to do the same for him in a way. I I I think I wore out that movie on VHS twice. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the it was one of the first horror movies I ever saw. We yeah, weren't, we weren't even supposed to be watching it. We we all, uh, my friend Dennis, he had one of he uh, his parents had bought like one of those split level homes, so you walk up downstairs is like the bedrooms and upstairs is like the kitchen and the living room right. and the living room was like right off the stairs so there were like seven of seven or eight of us and we were like eight nine years old and we're all like at the stairs <laughs> like this peeking through watching them <laughs> <You know? laughs> for us a nice dog jesus <laughs> and it was you know <laughs> oh <laughs> it, it just it just stuck into my brain and i'm like yeah, I wanna I wanna watch more of that. Yeah. Well I know I know Mike um probably uh was watching like hardcore death movies before he even got to the thing when he was a kid. But uh in terms of uh, me bumping into that film, my, my older brother used to do his best to make my life hell. He was known throughout the family as the needle because he would just be going at me like this for his entire life. <laughs> and um uh, he him and his friends hired the thing from the video store, um just to upset me because I was like three years younger. So they said, Hey Dave, we've got this film. Do you want to chuck in for it? And we'll, we'll go and watch it together. So I'm sitting there thinking I'm really cool with all my big brother's friends and um, the dog bursts and every one of them left. And I'm sat there watching this going, this is great. And it's firing the tentacles out and I'm shouting, it's spitting acid on him. It's spitting acid. And none of them would come back in the room. And uh, I don't think until today my brother likes horror movies anymore, but I had a great time, so stuff him. <laughs> I, I have to I... admit, what, one of the, the fun things I, I do now is there are whole YouTube channels devoted to uh, younger people who've never seen uh, certain movies before. And there's I, I search out the ones for John's movies, and, and it's so much fun. And you're getting like some twenty-year-old who has no idea what he's in is in for. Kind of, you know, he'll, he'll talk about the Marvel movies that he's just seen and what what a fan he is of uh, of some new horror movie that's just not very frightening at all. Mm. And then you watch them try and work out what is happening in the thing because they have no idea. They they don't even know what it's about. Um, you know, they start getting creeped out when when the dogs walking down the corridors, but they have no clue what's about to happen to them. And it's one of my favourite things on YouTube is to, is to watch people just freak out. And the, the fact that those films still have that power is, is wonderful. Yeah. Watch some 20-year-old scream and uh, piss himself at the same time. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's going to give you a thrill right there. <laughs> yeah, you, you, can, you can operate a smartphone, but, but you, you can't go without doing that. <laughs> And and think about like that's like everybody who's working on that were all, as far as I'm concerned, like firing on all cylinders, top of their game. Uh, uh, you mm. know, the effects crew and, and the music and just everything. And uh, we we've got to live up to that. We've we've got John's name on the front of the book. We've got to do our best. So Mike writes a scene where 
in the first book where somebody's got to, you know, infect someone in another way. And he, he's written it in a particular way that something's forming out of the parts of somebody else. And um, I, I must have done that page, I don't know, six or seven times because uh, it, it, I couldn't get to that horrible feeling that you get from the thing or the, the good stuff that John made back in the day, you know, where you're looking at it thinking, it's not doing it for me. And if it's not doing it for me, then it's not going to do it for the reader. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept going at it and kept going at it. And it was just trying to make a face out of guts coming together. And then them guts are going inside someone else's guts. And it, 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 at one point it just finally clicked. Like, you know, um, I thought, Oh, and, and you can work on something for days and still be staring at it. And then suddenly something clicks and you go, Oh yeah, I don't like that. Therefore I do like it. And so it's going in, you know, but it's also got a, you send it you send it back to everybody else and you've got to get that reaction from them too there's numerous times where i've said uh, how's how's this to mike pete janice everybody and somebody might say it's not working but it's my job to make it work i'm not going to take offense at that that's that's great feedback that's something i can work with that's something i can get my teeth into if, if, if i know it's not working i'll probably already know myself it's not working um and the fun bit is is making it work you know and we've got all that back catalogue in the back of our brains ready to go to uh, to inform that, which is nice. And, and, and the music, of course, is, yeah. is the other thing I was going to mention because the, the original book, Vortex, is named after, um, uh, I think it's the opening track on, on John's, um, uh, at the time, uh, uh, new album. Um, so when I wrote the first Vortex, I had that album on continuously. Um, and it, it, when I tend to write uh, anything for John and Sandy, I, I listen exclusively to to John Carpenter music just to to make sure that you know I'm I'm in the zone, as it mm. were. Um, so you, all that stuff that Dave's talking about that we grew up with is is it, it's it's part of our DNA by now. We've we've been playing, you know, watching those worlds for so long that, that and now we get to play in them. It's it's brilliant. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you know. That it has to entertain you and give and give you that certain feeling, and then you want to elevate it from that feeling to a higher plane because, well, you know, you might have a little bit of a big name on the front cover to live up to, and you know, you want to you want to do it for the for the fans that are that are reading the book too. You know, you know, I found the thing is that. Sorry, Mike. Go on. Go on. No, go on. I was oh, just going to say the other thing is because I've been. <laughs> Because I've been lucky enough to uh, to work with John and Sandy uh, on other uh, projects, um, I know when John's not enjoying something, um, he he's um, he's not afraid of telling someone when something's wrong. And you know, it was very nerve wracking early on when I would I would pass pages to him, and he would read them, and I'd like be like, "Oh my god, is he going to hate this?" And when he likes something, he tells you, and that's a great feeling. But you also know that he's not uh, he's not lying to you because i've seen him in situations when someone passes something to him that doesn't do it for him and he'll just tell them um which is great because you, you need to know that stuff so if at any point we were kind of going off the rails or taking it somewhere that that was uh, wasn't living up to the uh, the name on the front cover then um they would steer us back <laughs> very very yeah. quickly yeah. i think get you get your, um, get your back in the zone yeah yeah, I, I was just going to say, and a simplified version of what what you were saying there, Will, for me is 
I have a, a rule by which um, I do all my work, which is I'm the customer. Um, and I do something, uh, I make things that I would buy or I would read or I would enjoy looking at. And if I, th I think if you take something apart enough and try and <clears throat> deconstruct it enough, you, you, you lose the fact that, that this is supposed to be something that you would enjoy because this, that's how you got here. Um, that's that's how all the stuff in your past has, has built you to this point. Um, so I'm the customer. If I, I, I can tell you, um, hand on heart, when I get the finished issue through of each issue we've worked on, whether it's taken me a month of like stirring at it day in and day out, I'm still always thrilled to read that final issue because it's the thing that we've all gone towards to make. And if I treat the, every job I do as my own customer, then can't go wrong really because that, that that's who we're aiming at anyway i'm the guy who's going to go out and buy these comics even if i wasn't making them so got to, i think there's again it's that unwritten dna of knowing the thing that you're making i don't think we think about elevating it to a <coughs> level where, where we get customers beyond ourselves because we're the customers you know we're, we're the ones who love these things yeah so you, easy, really. well you've been at it for such an amount of time that you know, you just instinctively know. And if you don't know, you will know when John and Sandy tell you, uh-uh. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is why they're, they're sort of they're quite hands-off with us in terms of leaving us to get on with what we think works. Um, they're more than happy to step in and, and speak about things that they want to go in a particular direction. But um, I wouldn't say that we're... we're untouchable in that way I, I i like getting feedback i like getting told that something doesn't work because it's a chance to make it better uh but we are very very lucky after working with other people in the past and working for companies from firms and so on it's a world of difference working for somebody you know trusts you it's it's, it's just sleep at night better it's just the nicest yeah. feeling on earth you know plus to be honest nine times out of ten if there's if there's a problem with the panel um, it's it's to do with the writing. It's my fault. We got to go back and, and pick it apart, and it's usually me that's that's done something dumb. Um, and as soon as we <clears> fix that, it's usually a line here or a line there. It's just it's, you know something's going on from the wrong character's point of view, or um, it, it, it's something well, that we can I, just I move like around. So I like that malleability. I like the fact that um, Mike's not too uh, you know stuck in what he's he's he wants from the story to not be open to ideas from anyone we get we get ideas from janice about the lettering and we think oh the hell didn't we think of that um it, it's nice to be able to be flexible because mike changing a panel or doing something to to improve on the story um it's not like a massive change for the rest of us uh no it's all it's all in what's the word it's all for the story it's all in yeah. you know also, just because we work at different speeds, because I can write faster than Dev draws. So <laughs> I can be writing issue four while Dave's just starting on issue one. So um, it, it gives me that that stretch. I've got a, a little bit of a break from when I wrote the first one, so I can come back um, you know, with fresh eyes to it. And, and also, it informs where I'm trying to take it as well. Um, so that, that helps a lot as well. We're, we're constantly moving backwards and forwards within the story. I think past work uh, and how we've dealt with past work also informs how we can do stuff 
um, better. Now, I, I was going to say quicker, but quicker doesn't matter really, unless you're hitting the, as long as you're hitting the deadlines. But Mike knows instinctively he should never write anything with horses in, and he should stop writing anything <laughs> with crowds in. And if he includes the bicycle, Dave, in something, I'm coming. Dave for and it. I have done two two western stories now, which he hates me for. We we just uh, well, I think Dave's just starting drawing it now. Um, yeah. I think there's only there's one horse in this, though, Dave. So those animals I, have got the stupidest all... knees in the animal kingdom. <sighs> there's a single horse in this one dave so yeah, you, you can't complain the last one i think had all the horses i i have a funny feeling that horse isn't going to make it through the book <laughs> no <laughs> a lot of close-ups <laughs> on the horse's eye um Little, one, one straight bullet is all it takes <laughs> i'm more squeamish with animals for some reason I'm, I'm like oh no let's 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 keep the horse okay but anyone around the horse can explode that's fine Disembowel this, take the head off that. Nothing for the horse. Yeah. <laughs> the mine explodes. Everybody inside doesn't make it out. Apart from the horse. Although he is in a big bag, so we can't see his limbs. And he's just essentially <laughs> a ball because he's a hell of a lot easier to draw that way. Oh, and he's in a snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> you only have to draw him from the shoulders up. <laughs> It's, it's, a big, it's, a big, it's a big, it's a big snowstorm. There are a few moments where, uh, in the new book, I think, where where I do get nice texts from David about three in the morning, going, "Oh, thank Christ for page twelve, panel six, or whatever," <laughs> because we're we we might be repeating something. So that there's one scene I'm thinking of where you see someone leaving um, uh, an installation, and then. Time passes and you see someone else re-entering oh, yeah. it. That was that was, um, and that and that's great for Dave because he's he's already drawn the thing, so he just has to make a few alterations, and that's that's yeah. that's two pages. So I usually get a text saying, "Oh, thank God for that. That's great. That will save me some time." And then, of course, he turns the page and finds out that I've asked him to draw a crowd scene with eight hundred people or something, and then uh, the next text, he, uh, skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, there was a lot of skeletons in this book. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. What about? I then I, I then have to pass on all that goodwill to my brother and say, um, yeah, just take take a couple of days for page twenty one or something, you know. <laughs> and sorry, when he had to draw, I don't know how many undead um, in that hall in one of the early issues. He was like, oh, okay. Have you got any thoughts on this, Dave? I said, no. I just I just want it out out my life. I just want it with you. Get on with it. Be like drawing the. Uh... The, the scene in Lord of the Rings where he calls all the uh, all the dead come <laughs> flying off the ship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Draw, see, the, uh, but, draw all of these dead people in, into this right you see, now. You see, Mike's actually the way he writes. Anyway, he, he is in in a lot of ways. You know, we're joking about him being cruel here, but he is in a lot of ways leaving a lot of it to me. And uh, mm -hmm. stupidly, I. I'm obsessed with getting details in that we probably don't need. You do not need to see how many screws are in the panel on the wall behind someone when they're talking. Um, uh, yes, Pete, now, <laughs> those bloody skeletons. You are right, Pete. That's uh, our colorist, uh, my brethren. Um, but It's I, because I, I'm not an artist. So when I, when I write skeleton, I, I think of a skeleton. I don't think of... 180 individual bones that you've got to draw or whatever it is you know or, so, or the, uh, the 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 office that he sat in and the lego he's been building before he was skeletonized and and these are the stupid details that we don't need but that i feel like i'm forced to put in because my brain won't let me leave them alone 
Um, I'm I'm currently drawing a a, a train in <laughs> in this thing that Mike's written. in the western. And uh, Jesus, <sighs> I've researched every train and from the old west humanly possible. And I'm thinking I'd put it on that gauge rail, but I don't think it was it was that one at that time. And um, what's this now? It comes out someone's going to be onto me. Listen, mate, you got that train totally wrong. And I'm going to say I don't care. It's covered in details. I'm, I'm Spaceships are easier, I think. Spaceships are easier. You we can spend, just make them a ball. We we spend a lot of time at the beginning of the book trying to work out how many new ships and and space stations and things we'll need them. And, and those are the things that we that Dave you know designs and sketches out in advance and and. Mm -hmm. uh, and as he says, it's the stuff that trips us up is things like a mess hall. What what the hell does a mess hall look like on a on a space station a couple of hundred years from now? What what details are we going to have? That you know, uh, how do they enter the room? Where's where's the kitchen going to be? All all that kind of stuff kind of goes through Dave's head in a way that it doesn't through mine. I I'm just like, well, I need a table and some chairs because that guy on the left is going to explode on the next page. But Dave needs to know where all the entrance and exits are because, you know, who knows what's going to happen yeah. later on in the book. I've got, I've got Pete asking, um, what colour is this box in the corner, Dave? And I'm like, box? That's a vending machine for this very specific product. <laughs> <laughs> that costs this much. Yeah. Dave's the detail guy. Yeah, unfortunately. I need to break out of that habit. That's, that's a vending machine for uh, custard and fish sticks for... Uh, a very specific doctor that's going to be working on the station. <laughs> he wouldn't last two minutes in our books. He'd be, he'd be regenerating <laughs> like six, six times before he got back in his stupid little box. <laughs> no one lasts a long time in our books. That, that'd be funny to put in though. Or, or you have to draw a mess hall. And by the way, this, this one guy, this one guy is alive and everybody else is dead. <laughs> there's, all, there's all of that. So you're gonna put in all the details. <laughs> I had I had a I had a good chuckle when it was just him and the one dead guy, but the one dead guy had his chest blown out, so he bites mm -hmm. the sandwich and it falls back out onto the plate. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I should have put a bit more like gunk on that sandwich, I think. See, I, I can't go back on road work. I just want to change it. Well, you, you can't go back now. Well you, you can, well, you can you can do it for the uh, for the complete trade. Yeah, you see, the, the, I think my um, fiddliness with details is, is rubbing off on Mike because uh, he'll come back and say, "Isn't that? Uh, do you think we can change that for the trade?" And I'll say, "What? Well, there's a number in the wrong place there, and it's in the middle of like an action scene where a planet's about to explode, and then there's some <laughs> some all sort of stuffs going on." And I'm thinking, it's oh, like decal so change. Yeah, yeah, I've done that to you, haven't I? Sorry. Apologize, <laughs> but it's, you know, again, it's the stuff I'd buy. You know, it's like uh, Jeff Darrow and, and anybody else who's, who's putting like more detail in than you'll ever ever need. I just mm -hmm. love pouring all over that stuff. It's uh, it's what I want to see in my comics. So why not stick it in the stuff that uh, people are going to buy a fuss? Yeah, I mean, I buy I buy books that I like. You know, that I like the look of and. You know, or if it's a character that, you know, I really like, like, uh, I really like Constantine. So I've bought everything. Uh, well, his first appearance I have a reprint of because <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't dish out that kind of money. But um, one day. 
crossing my fingers. Yeah. Hopefully I'll get a rich girlfriend someday and be like, yeah, I'd really like this book over here. <laughs> I, I always got my eye out for um, uh, art from the Transformers comics. Uh, they were one of the first ones that I sort of actively went out and bought myself as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I found out our letter of Janice did the lettering in it. And I thought, I don't need any art. <laughs> I work with someone who worked on wow. Transformers. I'm like, whoa. I'll be happy with that for the day I die. Yeah. What was like one of the first books that you bought for yourself, Mike? Well, I grew up uh, here in England. We had 2000 AD from, from a very, very early age. My grandmother, every Saturday morning, would turn up from the market with uh, a, a comic rolled up in a piece of newspaper, which would, would be given to her by the, the chap on the market stall. And um, there was a relaunched Eagle when I was a kid, the old Eagle comic, and there were a few others. Um, but 2000 AD was like my Bible growing up. And I didn't understand comics when I first started reading it. I, I didn't, wasn't thinking that it was put together by human beings. I wasn't thinking about that there were writers and artists. It was just, it was the, the equivalent of a, a movie or a TV just straight in and um because I, I kept them and started collecting them um you you then pour over the issues again and again so you, you know you, you read it for the first time on the saturday morning and then come wednesday you'll be reading it for like the eighth time because you can't wait the the way 2000 ad worked there were so many cliffhangers you just just an exciting time to be a a, a kid with a with a comic book and um uh, going back to what Dave was saying about details, it, it, it was things like you would get through the story and the plot and you would appreciate the art, but it's when you went back, and it, it's why I always thought, especially in 2018 and something like Judge Dredd, the the city, Mega City 1, was a, was a character in, in its own right. The detail on, on the blocks the, and the the people living there in the background were, were, were just amazing. So... That, that was it for me as a kid and and that that carried on kind of like well into my 20s i was just everything was 2000 ad i've, I've got um a dread tattoo somewhere on my arm yeah kind of just you know that that was the thing for me i know for dave it was more uh the transformers books right uh yeah it was um it was it was very random when i was young and and i was in the situation of relatives bringing comics back my dad used to work up in Liverpool and the comics would come into Liverpool on big ships from the States um, as packaging for stuff. Mm. So um, a lot of them were damaged when they got here, but it was so rare to get American comics here that we we just lapped them up. And then we started to get a run of um, (laughs) dread for life. Um, We started to get a run of uh, like Marvel UK putting things out and, um, one of the first regular comics that was going to be available at my age at that time was Transformers. And they started to put out their own stories as well as giving us what was going on in the American pages. Uh, they would build off that and, and go off and spin off into different sort of directions. Um, so that was the first comic I was regularly buying for myself, got a paper round to go and get the money so I could go every two weeks and pick up that and then whatever else was on the shelf at the time I'd, I'd grab that too so I was buying all kinds of tat you know it was like a mask and the Thundercats and all this stuff and none of them really lasted but they used to do these uh, sort of compilation issues where they'd get an issue of Spider-Man 
and mix it in with something like Zoids or something bizarre. Um, but the Spider-Man element would be regular. So you'd get to see a lot of other comics as you followed the Spider-Man story. Um, and they were slightly oversized. They were on odd sort of paper stock. But you could get them all the time from every news agent, which is unfortunately something we've kind of lost in this country at the minute. Yeah. Mm. Um, you, you, it's, you can't really walk into a your average corner shop or a supermarket and get a, a regular subscription, really. Um, yeah. that's I didn't even know there was a. I didn't know there was such a thing as a comic book store until I was like twenty five. It was, mm. you know, as a kid and a teenager, they were just everywhere. There's a there's a um, a, a quote from Alan Moore saying when he was a kid, the comics were everywhere. They were like rickets. <laughs> um, but you know, we grew up with stuff like Beano and Wizard and Chips, which are, are, are very British, very very different from from what I've seen of American comics around the same period. But um, we'd also get weird, like the weirdest imported stuff on cheap paper stock. I, I, I guess someone would just just buy them up and reprint them over here. So again, from the local market, you could get um, old EC comic reprints. Oh, and yeah. my parents didn't know what the hell they were buying me. So you know, at, at like eight or nine, I'd be reading these really twisted, messed up horror stories with you know. Um, women falling out of the clothes and then you know men whose heads were flying off here and there and uh a lot of revenge stories i mean a lot of them were like classic crime kind of like noir stories with with a femme fatale but then the guy comes back from the dead with an axe and chops everyone up you know and just limbs going everywhere so i'm reading that at the same time that i'm i'm you know reading you know calvin and hobbs <laughs> yeah. well uh a friend of mine and myself do a uh, once a week podcast called OK Boomer, where all we do nice. is review like old comics. And because you brought it up last night, we went over the book that brought upon the Comic Code Authority EC Comics Crime Suspense, issue 22. Yeah. Nice. And you, you got plenty of story to read in there. It was. It was pretty much just like it was like an illustrated prose novel. Yeah. But yeah, completely we, different. Yeah, one of the uh, equivalents I'd say we probably had here was there was a comic called Action, um, and I think they were doing what what Mike was saying about just finding something exciting on the shelf that a ten year old kid really would want to see. You know, it's one of the main stars in the comic. They had a load of it's like an anthology. One of the main stars was a. Uh, you call it a shark with a with a big uh, harpoon in his jaw, and he was like the hero of the story. He would like literally slaughter people and rip them to shreds every week, and your fam your family would pick this off the shelf because it was next to Transformers or it was next to the Beano or Spider Man or something like that. And they'd say, "Oh, it's a comic, so it's bound to be for kids." Yeah. And they bring it home. And, yeah, it was Hook Jaw. Yeah, um, and th those type of comics. It, um, you just weirdly as a kid you don't really process that it's it's not for you it it is a comic it is it's fun there's stuff going on in it that you want to see and it's probably just as fun as seeing captain america wanging a shield into someone's face but at the same time um you look back at it and you think geez that was, that was some violent stuff kids in schools and stuff like that um but it's because it's on the shelf parents at that time we had the same thing with videos you'll know it's probably the same over there but um videos just were all went in the same shop 
So you'd get E.T., you know, uh, next to that you'd get uh, Phantasm, and uh, next to that you'd get Extro, and all the kids are going, which ones do we get tonight, Mum? And she'd say, oh, just pick one, doesn't matter, it's a video, we'll all watch it. So all all the... (laughs) Yeah, all the crazy stuff was right next to the stuff for kids. It was all sort of mashed into one thing, you know. My uncle used to bring over every now and again uh, pirate tapes. Um, when when we first started getting VHS, he, he would just bring over a, a, a pile, and no one knew what they were, and we just just watched them one after the other. And I remember one Saturday we would watch Empire Strikes Back when it was still on at the cinema. But it had Arabic subtitles at the bottom, um, and, and the, the quality was awful. Um, and then, yeah, enjoyed that. That was great. It was a, a big twist with Darth Vader. What's next? Oh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Never heard of it. Let's try that. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think that was the first first horror movie I watched. I was about twelve, and it was like Meat Hooks. Is that what it was? Um, Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, yeah, we watched uh, like over like two weekends. I, I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Alien. Um, Extra, I think the, the the British band horror movie at the time c- came out, um, along with you know Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo and and <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. It was just have some videos to watch with my uncle. Yeah, <laughs> just bring them over, and it just yeah. happened to be on a pile to my left because you you dropped his name a couple of times. Oh right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great book. I've got that one as well, actually. <laughs> It was a little easier to read when my eyes were better. Let's get some <laughs> small print over there. I remember when uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when they were fighting back and forth because of the because of the comics code, Marvel started, found their loophole and started putting Savage Soda Corn in, in magazines because magazines didn't have to adhere to, to the same thing. So yeah. those the the Punisher magazines and the uh, and uh, Mike Barron wrote uh, quite a few of the lead stories in those and uh, the the sort of the Savage Sword of Conan magazines were 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 pretty were pretty vile for the time, you know. So it was yeah. it was it was interesting. I actually bought a. Uh, a little, a small chunk off somebody's collection. The man had passed away, so the the wife sold it to a dealer, and she, the dealer, put his entire collection up for up for sale, priced everything out, and uh, put it in an antique store. Because that's what I that's what I was doing. I would be I'd be I before I was in the chair. I used to cruise like all the antique stores. I'd go to my local comic shop, like you know, at least once or twice a week, but. I cruise like the antique stores and the, uh, you know, the re the resale the resale stores where people would just like, you know, trade stuff in and find find some gems. And I I picked up a, a big chunk of the original Nova series, and yeah. I grabbed uh, the entire run of the original Champions. Yeah, but they were all the they were all your versions. They were all the the Marvel UK versions. Oh right, okay. It's, 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 I think I find it fun to flick through who who was involved with that at the time because um, you see that what they're doing now, you know, the the Mark Millers of the world and uh, mm. Grant Morrison and people like that. Um, I think Grant Morrison started out on, or one of his early ones was was Zoids actually, um, the one I mentioned before. 
Um, but it's fun just seeing that you know they've always been there. They've always been in the the, the comics industry in the UK, however small it might have been in comparison to the rest of the world. It's quite nice knowing it was there at that time. Yeah, like like a lot of a lot of the early stuff. Um, like I think uh, all through the eighties and the nineties, I bought anything that Alan Moore worked on. Yeah, you know everybody else was like, "What are you reading, Alan Moore?" Oh, Watchmen? No. Right. <laughs> I'm reading this. Who puts that out? I'm like some some small press company that he probably owns and it was just, you know, yeah. it was like an Im an import, you know, black and white and I'm like, cool. Yeah. I I I struggled with um associating names and faces, well I still do. Associating names and faces with people. Um in terms of what the work was, I, I like Mike said earlier, if comics were comics, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this has got a monster in it. I'm going to read that." And mm -hmm. it wasn't until much later I'd, I'd find out that you know, a lot of the artists that I admired, oh, they had a name, and yes, I have been following them for years. I just didn't realize. I just knew that I liked the work they were doing, um, and uh, I'm, I'm just as bad now in terms of remembering who people are. So, like walking around the floor of a, a convention. I won't know who anyone is until I see what the work they've got on the table, you know. See the work, and you you won't recognize them, but you'll recognize their work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because um, that was which, the thing that which will me probably going. mean more to them. You, you think? <laughs> well, I mean, as as a right. creator, I, I I would never expect anyone to recognize me. So, um, it, it would be nice, you're right, if if somebody recognized the work, though. Um, in fact, that was. That was um, instrumental in me discovering what my drawing style was, weirdly enough. Um, after years of drawing for other people, um, I, I never really fully sat down and thought, well, what's my, what's my drawing style? I've, I've, I've tried to draw like him and like her and whoever else, and I've never really sat and thought what mine is. And I was, I was doing a show once with my work out on display, and uh, this guy walked past and said, oh, I like your, your drawing style. I said, oh, what is it? Can you describe it? <laughs> he, said, uh, he says, come around here. So he takes me to the front of my own table. And he says, do you not see it? And I thought, ah, right, okay. And he'd recognised my work as opposed to, to me. Not that he should recognise me, you know. Never go out. But um, he, uh, it was nice to see that somebody spotted uh, something similar across all my work. And ever since he did that, I've kind of relaxed and gone, oh, I actually know what I draw like now. Um, I'm kind of comfortable with it. Oh, I, every once in a while I have somebody say, oh, I know you. And I'm like, what, am I still up on the post office wall? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no, no. Because uh, prior to all this, I was, a, I was a nightclub DJ in this area for like 35 years. Right. So I'm like, I see, I see faces, and I'm like, okay. Who's that? <laughs> I know. It's like, see the guys, like, hey, what's going on, fellas? <laughs> see the girls, trying to think of something not stupid to say, and, uh, <laughs> you know. When I went through the uh, the nightclub phase uh, in my youth, I, I, I could never remember anyone's name, so I just called everyone uh, Yakov. 
Um, don't know where it came from, but um, I, I still meet guys now who won't tell me their name when I meet them because they know that I know them as Yakov, and it would be embarrassing for them to say it's actually Mark. You know, <laughs> thirty years later, I'm still calling him the same thing. Yeah, at least you weren't calling him a slag. <laughs> there were a couple. Yeah, I'm sure there were. <laughs> see, see, I told you I was watching Jimmy Carr before the show. <laughs> so how did the uh you talked about the the way the meetings happen with uh with John and Sandy. The particular plot for this continuation of Vortex. How did that uh pitch come about? Um there's a character in Vortex One that was never supposed to survive. Um, I knew what was happening with with, with everyone in it, and um, I knew what was going to happen to the main guy. I knew what was going to happen to the bad guy. Um, you had this whole supporting cast. Um, nearly everyone was going to get killed. And uh, one character was supposed to die, I think, in issue end of issue two, maybe beginning of issue three. And um, I was more surprised than anyone else when she didn't. Um, so I thought, that's okay. Cause well, I, I, like, so. <laughs> I, I like where she's going. We'll, we'll kill her off in issue four or maybe issue five. And we get to eight, which is the finale. And, and um, she's still standing. And um, it, it just, it felt, you know, there's that phrase about killing your darlings. And, and I tried, I really tried, but um <laughs> There's there's a sequence where I I literally wrote her into a corner. She's she's in a corner with the whole space station exploding around her, and she manages to get away from it. She manages to to get out of it, and not in a kind of old 1930s Flash Gordon falling down a pit and then cutting back and finding out there was actually a, a way for him to get away from that. It, it was a it was just all character based. Like she she wasn't going to go down in that way. Um, so the, the main thrust for me for, for wanting to do a second book was to drop her and the, the couple of survivors from, from issue one, from uh, Vortex One. Um, and just again, just try, try my damnedest to, to see if we, can, if we can kill her off. <laughs> it's, it's like the whole book is just an, an attempted murder. Um, you've not got quite got to, got to the end yet, so I, I won't spoil it. But um, that's where it came from. It's kind of do these characters have any life left in them? We didn't want to kind of, you know, beat a dead horse. It didn't want to do a sequel for the sake of it. Um, a, a lot of it gets wrapped up, but there are a few niggling points about um, what happens afterwards when 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 the dust settles. Like the, there's a few people standing and. The world has been impacted in a certain way because of this thing that, that, that has been discovered. So th those were like the minor elements to me that I thought were interesting. Like we can find out how that all progresses and there's a, there's a time jump as well. So it was a chance to pick up, you know, 20 years later to see what these characters were up to. Um, but mostly it was just like, I, I just want to see if we can, uh, we can put this character in, in similar kind of situation and see if she gets out again. I'm writing this book and I'm trying to kill this woman, but she just won't die. I can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. It might, be, it. 
it might be the artist. We we do a Mulvaney tune door little door behind her so she could sneak out. Does she look like a horse? She should die. <laughs> if, she, if she was a centaur, she'd be dead already. <laughs> she'd be fast. She'd get away from everything. Goddamn horses. <laughs> <laughs> How is the Western going, Dave? What page are you on? Uh, I'm not saying publicly. I've almost finished it, Mike. <laughs> he says. <laughs> You know, when I first uh, when I first, when I first uh, met John, he was playing a, a concert in uh, in the UK in Manchester, and uh, Sandy said uh, you should go along and say hello. I said, well, I've got tickets anyway, and I'm going to go and see him anyway, to be honest. And we'd had the job for a couple of months, and uh, maybe even a bit longer actually. <laughs> and uh, both Mike and I. Well, not us, our respective partners had just had kids, so you know the universe was upside down. The house was just like a sea of Lego and and stuff like that. Um, I didn't know what which way it was up, and I hadn't really started the book. You know, I'd done all the preliminary sketches, and uh, uh, Mike had got me the script, and so I had enough to go on. But I'd just had like three months without sleep, so I was kind of wired. And uh, anyway, we got to see. Uh, John and uh, he was very kind enough to invite me back to say hello before he went on, and then just say thanks to him later on when he when he'd finished. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, you meet your heroes, and um, I mean like your real heroes, and something kicks in. Um, it's not necessarily nerves; it's just that you you think you're stupid in, in front of this person, and like maybe my intelligence levels are just have just dropped um, rapidly. Uh, but I go in and I say hello to John and say thanks very much for having us and it's nice to meet you. And I, I've not met him as, as many times as Mike, but I think he's well aware of the effect he's got on people. You know when he meets them, and he plays with that. So I go in and say like, uh, I, I go in and he says, um, he says, oh, great to meet you, Dave. I'm glad you're here for the show and everything. Where's my pages, man? And I went, oh Christ, oh my God, and my blood just froze. My blood just froze. I thought I've waited my life to meet this fellow, and he's he's got me. And I went, uh, I've had a kid, and uh, and he starts laughing. He's saying, it's, it's all right, mate. I'm only messing with you, but where's my pages, man? And I went, I can't, not again. <laughs> so he's laughing away, and uh, I'm thinking, I've got away from. I didn't make a fool of myself there, and then uh, I was telling him that uh, I'd. Uh, I was talking about my wife being from Japan and he said, oh, she's from Japan. He said, do you like cinema of Japan and stuff? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I've seen like Godzilla and stuff. Me not knowing that he's a massive Godzilla fan and I've just <laughs> put myself in it again. And he says, uh, what's the, what does, uh, what's the name of that new one? It's Shin Godzilla, isn't it? What does, what does Shin mean? I said, uh, don't know. He said, how long have you been married to the, to the Japanese girl? I said, oh, Yes, we've just had a baby. <laughs> so he's creased up. And uh, I only found out later on, it means new Godzilla. I thought, I should have known that. <laughs> so I kind of looked like a dunce when I first met him, but he was still lovely. So it was a nice meeting. <laughs> Gotta love those funny stories. <laughs> yeah. We had a, we had a similar thing uh, with another creator where... Uh, 
his artist was also the inker and colorist. She was doing everything. Uh, and she was showing off some new pages for, for an upcoming issue. And uh, she hadn't finished coloring the pages from the prior issue. Right. She was like, hey, why don't you show off those new pages you colored? Um, well, you see, I got into drawing the new issue, and I haven't quite finished the old one yet. Like, so then it the uh, it was uh it was a late night one here so all the chat was was lighting up and everybody's like hey where's my colored pages where's my colored pages <laughs> a couple of people like i have my crayola send me a couple <laughs> it's been fun finding out the uh the, the process with with working with storm king as well actually um like previously, if Mike and I have, have created something, it's literally all been down to us. So, I mean, the the very first comic we did together was with a friend of ours, Steve Kilpatrick, um, and it was just for us. I don't think we ever actually did anything with it. I know Steve went off and did stuff with it, but it was called The Night Bride. And I actually drew that on individual books in a sketchbook in a coffee shop each morning when I was on my way to work. So there was no real process for putting the thing together. Um, it's amazing that it actually finally did get together in the end. Um, but the more you do it, the more you realize that it would probably make sense if I drew everything on the same page. And it would probably make sense if I put them in a folder. And it would probably make sense <laughs> if um, that those folders were named and not just untitled one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So over time, that technique um, became something that just Mike and I were using it was just like what's in the Dropbox we know where it is and we're going to go from there uh, and then when we started with Storm King I was very acutely aware that this is a, a real comic company now you know this is uh, these are people who know what they're doing you know um, and I was amazed that they'd got to the same conclusion themselves um, like uh, there's me thinking that this, there's a there's a way of working that I don't know about but because of the way comics are made, everyone naturally finds that way of working anyway. So when I said, uh, what do you guys think about me opening a folder for the inks? And if I get some JPEGs ready for you guys to drop the lettering on and stuff like that, they're all saying, yeah, we do that anyway. You know, it's uh, that's how it works. And I just thought, right, okay, cool. Uh, it's nice to meet people who learn as they go along instead of just, here's a, page, here's a random page and I'll color it and a couple of weeks when I get around to it and stuff like that. And are you do are you doing anything traditional or are you doing all digital now? Um, I I've worked like I said when I worked in in games and uh, graphic design and stuff. I forced myself to learn how to use a Wacom tablet um, a long long time ago because I always liked the idea of being able to transfer what I do outside of a computer into a computer. And what I like to do, if possible, is, I can, well, I can't ignore those 20, 25 years of working in Photoshop. I, it's part of my skill set. It's, it's just something that I do. Um, so I, I can't really ignore that, really. But what I do like to do is make sure that my um, digital work looks like my traditional work. And I think it's taken a long time for... Um, technology to catch up to the point where the brushes you're using digitally 
will do the same job um, as what you're using traditionally. And yes, to answer your question, because I do go on a lot, apologies, um, I do have that ability to work traditionally, but when I'm faster digitally, it kind of makes sense for what we do to work that way. Um, that doesn't stop me from spending all day drawing a page and then sitting down at 10 o'clock at night thinking, what can I do to relax? And deciding to have a drawer in my sketchbook. Um, it, it's still there. It's still something I go back to all the time because you don't have control Z in a sketchbook. You can't undo a mistake you've made. It's fun to make those mistakes. And it also informs what I do with the digital stuff. I like to make mistakes in the digital stuff. I like to meet, um, well, hello, friend. I like, wow. those, <laughs> I like for those mistakes to stay there and it's it's so i would hope that my digital stuff doesn't feel too digital if that makes sense um i'd like it to feel like i've done it with a pencil because i have physically drawn it um it's just i don't want it to look too clean if that makes sense yeah you kind of do so you would be doing like a rough sketch kind of like in your sketchbook you know working up working out everything and then you go right to your uh right to your computer yeah. pad and, and get down to yeah. it it's a number it's a number of things that inform you as you go along with with the creation of the art it's um one thing i've i've come to rely on more and more is i really need to do character sketches early on with with characters in their costumes because just like i said when I was with that bloody scar that I, I just kept missing off. If I don't have that reference in front of me, I will draw them as I feel they look in that scene. And sometimes I might be wrong. I can't tell you how many times I've gone back and put elbow pads on because I've forgotten. Um, and having that stuff there around you to inform you when you do it is, is great. And, and a lot of that stuff gets done traditionally because then you can pin it around the room. Are you purring, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, this cat's cracking the office. That's his stomach. Really... He's, he's got the munchies. <laughs> you're just really happy. <laughs> now, uh, who, when you first started, when you first started in the business, who were you looking up to that influenced mm. you some? Go on, Mike. Um, well, I've already mentioned Alan Moore, who is one of the, the first writers I recognize the name of um, from 2000 AD when I was a kid. So um, kind of followed his career throughout. Um, Warren Ellis was a, a huge influence, and uh, I, I met Warren a few times, and he helped me out with um, some of the earlier um, TV stuff that I was doing. So um, I owe Warren a huge debt of gratitude for that. Um, and then aside from that, it was, to be honest, it was mostly um, film and TV stuff that was, that, was, that was my focus. And I moved away from comics for, for years. And um, I ended up getting... Um, Quite a few years, I worked in bookstores in 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 London, and um, I ended up looking after the comic section, um, and that's when I started to read everything again, and I hadn't really been aware of it as an industry, especially in the UK. 
up until that point when I started getting getting the books in in advance and I'd get reps coming in tell me what what was coming out etc um so I I got to kind of curate what the the few shops I worked in um the the kind of stuff that that we were that we were selling so yeah so that's when it then it really changed for me and everything started to click the that uh, how the industry worked and and uh um, I, I think I, uh, that's when I picked up things like Preacher and Sandman and uh, um, that that whole wave of, of kind of the, the more adult-orientated stuff. Because as a kid, I hadn't really been into the superhero stuff at all. Um, but I picked up, I think my first year at university, I picked up the, the first uh, series of Hellblazer, which blew me away. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was I was into anything that was horror based back then as well. So there was a, there was a whole series of Clive Barker's Books of Blood, and it's when I first started going into comic book stores. But I was actually looking just for horror titles at that at, at that point. I wasn't I wasn't very well read. Um, in, in, I was very focused on on just the horror. Um, and it was only when I was selling the books that that um, I, I realised how the from what my idea of the industry was to, to kind of how broad it was. Um, so I still don't read many superhero books. Um, you know, I was, I was a big fan of the walking dead when that started and, um, then kind of read more indie stuff than anything else, to be honest. Um, but the, the, the stuff that, that sticks with me, the stuff that I go back to tends to be, um, uh, you know, preacher, Sandman, uh, Transmetropolitan, all that stuff. Mm. The, uh, the, um, the more character-driven stuff, non non-superhero. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, I love a good. I mean, I, I still love a good superhero story, and Alan Moore's done some great ones. Um, mm-hmm. But um, and I enjoy the Marvel movies, and uh, um, I I tend to get when I get into something, I get bogged down in it. So I want to go back and I want to read everything, and I, I find that impossible with us. <laughs> You pick any superhero, and I've, I've got to go back to 1944 to find out what they were doing during the war. There's just there's just too much too much history. Um, well, if it was a DC uh, hero, they were selling they were selling bonds on the cover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, punching Nazis, so that's all good. Um, I can appreciate that. But yeah, um, I I kind of I, again I was reading Watchmen, so. I, I, to me, that was kind of like I'd, I'd seen how superheroes end, and it, it felt almost redundant to then go back and, and read a Superman book after I'd seen, you know, um, Rorschach explode. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or kind of, you know, trying to take Batman seriously is, is, is um, you know, so I still have, I still have problems with like Batman movies. I, I know everyone loves Batman, but I'm, I'm like, as soon as he, he starts dressing as a bat, he loses me. I really enjoyed the Dark Knight like right up until he put the suit on. You didn't like Arnold as Mr. Freeze? What's wrong with you, man? Oh, yeah, God. I don't think I've ever seen that. I've seen bits. I've seen clips. But, yeah. So, I think I'm, so, I think I'm that, out in that. <laughs> the whole superhero genre stuff is is, is fine. I, I, I get it. I, I, I'm glad it's there for the people that are really, really into it. Um, and I, I, I do eventually watch everything that's come out. I think I've seen all the Marvel stuff now. I think I've seen all the DC stuff. Um, it, it's just not really, uh, not really for me. 
Well, based based on some of the videos you used to hand to me at school that used to give my mother a heart attack when she found them in my room, uh, it never was your scene, really, was it? I remember my mum coming into my bedroom saying, Jesus Christ, what's that? And it was the cover of uh, From Beyond on my, on my shelf, that guy's face, face yeah. melted. So, no, it's just something it might give me at school, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I had to buy Reanimator on VHS about six times because I kept lending it out and never getting it back. So reanimation from beyond and all that stuff. But it also goes back to 2000 AD because I, I grew up reading Judge Dredd. And, you, you know, he, you in Judge Dredd, if you're walking down the street and you, you spit bubblegum out, he shoots your kneecaps off and and gives you 10 years in, in prison for it. And I'm reading this when I'm, I'm 10. And then you start reading Superman and it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> he's too nice, too nice. So it, it, it all, it, I didn't really, it didn't get me the same way that, that reading something like uh, Rogue Trooper and Stronium Jog and all that, all that kind of like British, very cynical, dark, you know, that, and I think that's why I was drawn to the, the Vertigo line, because it was a lot of British writers coming over and, and kind of pushing that in. Um, you know, I, I remember reading um, when they were trying to keep those characters in the superhero universes, so um it just seemed weird to have john constantine kind of helping out batman <laughs> just yeah you want, you, having a problem with the joker why don't i bring up a demon who'll turn him inside out for you that'll sort it out for you <laughs> <laughs> i always i always and i always enjoyed uh constantine popping in and out of the swamp thing series though oh yeah that was brilliant yeah because uh they pretty much hated each other in, in like a love hate relationship, you know. And uh, we were talking last night, goes because when we were talking about the EC book, like everybody in that book smoked. Mm-hmm. He goes, and he was like, goes, Does anybody still smoke? I go, Constantine still smokes. He beat the cancer, so he got right back on the stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But you know, really, they they've taken that they they've taken that out. Even characters that have been you know smoking their whole whoops, we lost him. Oh, we lost Mike. He'll be back. Don't worry. Uh, even characters that have been you know just smoking cigars for like you know the last almost hundred years. You know, yeah. Wolverine's yeah. been smoking cigars since he came around, and Ben Grimm always had a cigar in his hand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's kind of it was kind of the character, wasn't it? Uh, you would always see them like surrounded by the smoke, and it's a lovely thing to to play with drawing mm-hmm. smoke too. Um, uh, uh, speaking of uh, like my influences, while Mike's on a hiatus at the minute, he's probably wrestling that Dalek. Um, <laughs> I, there was a there was a guy who used to draw some of the UK Transformers stuff. A guy called uh, Jeff Senior. And um, I, it, it's an odd comic to have sort of like a grown up with thinking that this comic's got the best characters I've ever seen in because um, they're all just giant robots having fights all the time. But it, I did like what they were doing with people like Starscream and, and Prime and stuff like that. They were they were just great, interesting characters. You know, the the underling of the bad guy who's always trying to undermine him in some way. It, it's a fun character to have around. But there was a guy called Jeff Senior um, who used to draw the hell out of Transformers. He was just 
an absolute delight opening an issue and finding out it was his art in it. Um, he, he was an influence on me. Um, and there's a lot of comics where I didn't realize they were an influence um, until years later. And I'll sit down and think, how am I going to draw how this torch shines? And I think, oh, like Walt Simonson did in uh, the Alien, uh, the illustrated story. And I don't realize I'm doing that, but it, the influence was there. And so I only realized years later who has been a big influence on me. And sometimes it's reflected back to you in the work. And sometimes I miss it totally and have other people pointed out. One of, one of the big influences on me was uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who did Akira. Mm -hmm. um, another idiot for details. You don't need that much detail, but he puts it in. You know? Yeah. Uh, you don't need that much detail, but he puts it in and it makes it a whole load of fun to have it there. Um, Jeff Darrow, another one. Um, and again, I, I don't think I've sat and noted who my influences are, but I enjoy somebody popping up at my table at a convention and saying, um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of, of this. And I think, oh, well, it probably does actually. Yeah, I've, I have read that and I did like read it a thousand times as a kid. Um, I think a big one was Walt Simonson's Alien. The illustrated story. I, I do mention that a lot if I'm on a podcast over here or something because it was a big turning point for me in comics, finding that you could get cinematic horror um, told in telling the same story as a movie but told in in the way that only comics can do it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I, I like that genre as well, the fact that don't get me wrong, Alien's a great film, but in my head, the version of Alien in my head is that version that Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson did for heavy metal um, because that was the version that I read 500 times and couldn't put down. Um, it's kind of ingrained. So there's, there's a lot of influence, I think in every artist repertoire, I'd, I'd be putting the millions of artists who I admire down by mentioning just a few of them. But um, I think you can pick something up from virtually everybody and mm. have it influence you. Um, I've, I've done tutoring with, 10 year old kids who've, who've done something that have drawn something that's had me in stitches or, you know, I think that what a great idea, you know, um, I think there's influence everywhere. If you're looking for it, you see that, that was the, that was the easy way of getting out of telling you who my, my influences were. <laughs> and then we didn't find out who he actually looked up to. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> well, I, I was, I was thinking, you know, how, how Mike was so ingrained in the uh, in the in the 2000 AD line. Yeah, yeah, I think I was the same way with heavy metal and the old Vampirella magazines. Oh right, right, okay, yeah. You know, of course, you know, I was buying the old Vampirella magazines because you know I like girls, and that's definitely a girl. So <laughs> I'm buying this. Oh, and she's kicking some ass. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I go, this is cool. And, you know, and in the early days of that magazine, it was all, it was all high end, you know, you know, people that are, you know, in the gold room of, uh, you know, legendary artists on that yeah. book, you know, yeah. you know, you know, Frazetta, um, I had like three names in my head and they just went, ah. um, uh, Neil Neil Adams did a bunch of stuff there. 
uh, and then you go you go over to heavy metal and uh, you you know you'd catch uh, you catch some like Olivia stuff and uh, some uh, Michael Whalen fantasy stuff and you know you know take Morbius and you know on down the way and you just like yeah you know and I was yelling because my friend was managing the uh, the comic shop he's now the owner of it but you know when I first discovered heavy metal magazine when I was like in high school I was like this is awesome he goes oh yeah heavy metal is the best thing you can buy I go why didn't you tell me about this last year because <laughs> I, I I never I never saw a comic book store until I was like 15. Oh, I really? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know they existed either. And, you know, one day I'm bunking school, walking around downtown and this guy who had a store, uh, like 45 minutes away, opened the second store in my town. And it was like, uh, a big portion of main street ended up becoming a one lane road, a one way yeah. road. And it was just like, you know, offices like all built down but he rented out a bunch of the like the little offices and it, yeah. it it was like you know a little like five and dime storefront looking thing and yeah you know i walked i walked by it and then like you know a minute later my brain kicked me in the ass and and i turned to go was that a comic shop <laughs> and i turned around and i was like I was like, oh! <laughs> you know, I, I, got, I got that at that same age as well, actually. I had the the standard school hiatus where you're interested in VMXs and girls and stuff like that. And then mm -hmm. um, I bumped into a, a kid, uh, just finished school, so it was like we were 16. I bumped into a kid I was at school with, and uh, he says, where are you going? I, I said, I'm just uh, on my way home. He said, let's go to the uh, comic shop. I said, what? We've got a comic shop. My small, <laughs> like in the middle of nowhere town's got a comic shop. And it was a guy who was, he had a record store and he'd sell skateboards and stuff like that. Allen's, he's called, still going today selling bikes. But he decided to put a comic section down the end of the uh, the shop. It wasn't big, but it was, it was when Dark Horse kicked off. So it was um, all the aliens, comics, Predator, The Mask, um, Concrete, all that kind of thing. And then you had Grendel going on as well. Um, and there was loads of indie stuff too, like like Flaming Carrot and just other mad oddities, you know. And just having that in in the town, I'm like, well, does every town have one of these? This is incredible. <laughs> and, and we'd gone from in the UK specifically, we'd gone from like every news agent, um, a news agent being, you know, the corner store or whatever you'd call it. You guys would call it over the. Every one of those news agents had. Um, a lot of comics in them so there was never any shortage of, of being able to go in and find finding something and most of them would let you make a subscription because they were regularly getting them in so it was nothing for them to just say we'll always order your issue of transformers or something like that so i had subscriptions to stuff when i was younger and so on but that has, has just taken a nosedive in the uk that's totally disappeared so there isn't physically anywhere you can walk to and just find and stumble over comics anymore and to have that one there when I was a kid and just find out there is a, a dedicated comic store here and it's not just the UK stuff, it's everything from the States as well. Um, that was it. The, the, the hobby just took off again and um, stopped since. 
Um, I was just pocket money, pocket money. I was just handing it over every week because I just wanted more. Um, and and even, I mean, all the comic stores are struggling now. I know that, but uh, it's such a shame knowing that my little lad, who's four now, if I'm going to get a comic for him, I have to subscribe to it or get online to get it. He's not going to stumble across it in a store and see the cover. And unless we actively go to a comic shop, which is now it's probably a good 20 miles away from where we live, um, he's not going to be on his way home from school and have 50 pence in his pocket and find a comic. And I think, oh, what all the stuff he's going to miss out on, you know, unless this virus disappears and we can all start rolling around again in the convention scene and he can find it for himself there, really. But uh, I was very, uh, very appreciative of that when I was a kid, the fact that there was a place where you could go and you could find it all. Oh, you just gonna you just you just gonna drop drop the hint in one of the meetings with uh, with John. You know, it'd be really great if there was a comic shop in my town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you could put it next to my house, John. Don't we? I'd, I'd give you some. You know, I'd spend some money there. Um, we could stock it with our stuff. <laughs> stock it with our stuff, and you know. There'll be a line at the door for people asking you to to sign to sign the copies and the, 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 I mean this is not me being the the king of sales or anything but um they're doing really fun stuff at Storm King at the minute because they've they've got like our type of books going on the um, ours are in a, a genre on on the site called uh, Tales of Science Fiction so mm -hmm. they rotate those stories they'll it, under that banner um, that's great because we get to see new artists new writers. Um, different collaborations with people that stuff's coming out all the time but they've they've recently gone into like storm kids specific specifically aimed comics horror comics for kids um and yeah i know that they're around and i know that there's plenty of them but it's nice to know that they're they're considering that audience and they're they're, they're getting good stories out to that audience uh and you know, me and Michael eyeing it like, um, could we do a kids one? That's going to be brilliant. How are we going to make like horror like for a, an audience where it's nice to have those limitations? You know, you can't go full on guts eating guts and whatever. Uh, you, you've got to you've got to be more creative with it. You've got to think of the audience, and it's quite a nice well, challenge. You, you, you make like. it a pop up book, and then the last page, a big giant ah. squid comes out and eats the kid's face. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'd buy two of them. <laughs> it's, do you think we're going to get? Do you think we're going to get Mike back? Because I, 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 I think he might have lost his internet, or either that, or his his cat decided it wasn't happy and you know chewed all his cords out. Could could well be that. Um, his, his cats are gigantic. I don't know if you saw the size of it. I think it's a yeah. Norwegian forest cat. He's got. Um, I, I always enjoy the fact that um, my lovely wife uh, grew up in Tokyo and uh, never had pets when she was a kid, so she, she doesn't really know how to interact with animals, and it's kind of hilarious when she meets them. So if we ever go to Mike's, she'll she'll bow to the cats and say hello, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> your heart melts a little bit, you know. <clears throat> and weirdly, they're just like taking it all in. They'll sit and watch it like that. Um, I'll give him a shout. Uh, see if we can find him if you want. Hey, Mike. Yeah, see so if we is. can get him back in yeah. for a few minutes to uh, yeah. let him finish his, uh, his thoughts before we. Uh... Can you get back in? 
There we go. Okay, that's my little pocket computer winging him a message. Are you are you reading anything nowadays? Comic wise? Um, I, I I sort of dip in and out. Um, weirdly, ironically, um, if I'm using the word ironic in the correct sense, which I never I always doubt myself. Um, ironically, making comics means you don't have a lot of time for comics. Yeah, um, I know. But uh, I do try and jump on stuff um, if like. Uh, that, you know, something takes my eye or something. I read um, what's the one recently? The, one of the Joe Hill uh, horror ones. Uh, was it was it Plunge? I think it was called Plunge. Um, with uh, Stuart Immon and on the art. Mm -hmm. Oh God, that guy can draw like the wind. He's brilliant. Um, it's just sometimes it's just a pleasure to know that that writer's working on something and that artist's working on something, and um, I'll devour it, whatever it is, you know. Uh, but it just so happened that I really enjoyed that one. That was a great story. Um, what else? I do a lot of rereading. Um, I do a lot of. Uh, um, I'll go back and visit Lock and Key whenever I get the chance, or oh, yeah. Invincible. You know, um, oh, it, yeah. I like to get. I like to have those ones. Um, the books that I always recommend to other people who don't read comics are the ones that I will go back to um, and. Invincible being a great one. It's a great one, but it's also a bad one because um, I bought all the big volumes of it, so I've got this fantastic collection on the shelf ready to go. And if I recommend it to someone, they say, oh, how do I get hold of it? And I think, ah, oh, God, they're going to have to borrow mine. Um, so I want to recommend it, but I don't always because they're very precious to me, those books. <laughs> you got you got to go online and order it for yourself. Yeah, you've got to go and spend some money to, to pay the guys who made it. That's what you've got to do. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you, uh, you yeah. buy a you buy a handful of the like the the one dollar reprints of like the first issue to get them hooked yeah, on yeah. it. And goes search the internet, yeah. mate. Yeah, <laughs> you know okay, there are a few. Um, I, I I get a lot of influence from. I should start listening to. Is it is it is it Kayfabe? The the one of the is it a podcast that. Um, I never, I've never really looked it up. I've got to be honest. There's a guy who I listen to on a podcast over here on the Awesome Comics podcast, and they deal a lot with indie comics, and they um, review a hell of a lot of stuff, and I get a lot of my influence from them. And one of the guys on there has talked about Kayfabe being an influence to people and, and recommending books, and if they recommend a book, it suddenly flies off the shelves because everyone wants to go and grab it. Mm -hmm. um, but the Awesome Comics guys have... have uh, pointed me in the direction of some really, really nice stuff over the years. Uh, one of the recent ones I, I had was uh, a book called Carth Carthago or Carthago uh, by Humanoid Comics. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a whole... We're getting a whole load of great stuff from uh, mainland Europe coming over um, in the last few years where they've been uh, books and getting them over to the UK audience. Um, you can't always get them as a physical book but um, I've been enjoying uh, just seeing what those guys are putting out. Uh, and again, the Awesome Comics guys are great for finding those things, just recommendations. Um, so I tend to follow that. I'm getting a bit more stuff digitally now because I'm running out of room in the house. Uh, but I'm, I'm dipping in every so often. I wouldn't say I'm buying regularly every week, but uh, I'm dipping in and I'm enjoying it. So. What about yourself? Um, I uh, I just ordered uh, another Kickstarter today. 
because it, it only yeah, makes yeah. sense. I, I bought the first two parts. So I might as well have the final part. Um, yeah. This uh, this young kid, uh, Connor Bartell, uh, lives in Alaska. Yeah. So the uh, the shipping is a little a little wanky. So everybody that lives in like the yeah. lower forty eight states, he uh, he sends a file to this company that operates in Florida. I can't remember the name of it now. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. But you can put your your book there, like a digital file of your book. And yeah. people can pay to download the PDF of it nice for yeah. like a, a small amount of money. And then for like, you know, four or five bucks more, yeah. they can buy a physical copy. And this company uh, will print to order. So they're like yeah. print print on demand. So they'll print on demand, package the books and, and ship them to you. That's a great idea, isn't it? For, for, for like one low price. Cause, cause yeah. Cause you know, Shipping back and forth to the UK can get pricey. Uh, to oh, Australia, okay. Australia is even ten times worse. Mm, yeah, yeah. Friend of mine it, it, always amazes, said, it always amazes me that like Australia's got like a good comics community. Um, again, another podcast, the uh, the Rad Lounge, the Radioactive Lounge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 one of the guys in there who owns a store. The tales that they have to go through to get just to get comics there. You know, it's a uh, I'm glad there's people like that who are passionate enough about it to to be doing it. You know, yeah. Uh, but that, they, that's, that's a nice s- idea. They, they sell for a good amount there. I got a I got a friend down there um, who lives in the Western Province, and yeah. he is oh, he's got a huge huge collection. Like yeah. he'll buy like two or three covers of stuff, and he'll turn her, he'll turn around and you know post up and you know something that just came out like last week he's already got like you know signed and remarked editions of it and you know original art from from you know arturo lugo or you know very you know various other guys um that you that you know you know names from like you know that you'd be like you gotta you got somebody from heavy metal to draw you like a comic book panel (laughs) <laughs> oh my god yeah <laughs> you know it's it, it was just crazy because before all this craziness started i covered a uh i covered a convention uh south of boston hmm. and i got to meet and hang out with neil adams uh mike grell uh Mankey, uh, Joe Rubenstein, uh, yeah. Bill McKay, oh, man. and uh, Graham Nolan. Oh, man. Okay, yeah. I'm done dropping names. <laughs> <laughs> I was in heaven. I because I, I I was in the chair, so I get the you know I get the press pass, so they just let me in like an hour early. Yeah, which was good because they they put uh, they had a specialty. Uh, Microbrew uh, beer cart, like in the middle of of Artist Alley. So you know, <laughs> yeah. I I kicked the day off nice, and <laughs> I I spent like a good like forty five minutes to an hour uh, talking to Neil Adams. Awesome. You know, so I got him in a good mood before he got all cranky, and uh, <laughs> and the guy that uh, created the world's greatest superhero line, uh, 
Marty Abrams, the old uh, the old Mego uh, eight inch toys from the from like oh, the sixties yeah, and the seventies. Yeah. You know, yeah. those, those are those are back again, and he was there, and Neil drew the original art for the Mego line. Oh right, did he? So, and I was talking to uh, Marty. I go, he's like, so what are your plans for the rest of the day? Now I go, well, I'm gonna head back down the other end and uh, probably go talk to Neil Adams. Neil Adams is here. I go, I go, yeah, he's got the entire corner as you walk in the door. Just walk straight down this aisle. <laughs> they went down there and they they took a picture together, and then he posted the the new picture next to the original picture from like 1972. Oh man! Of them just you know sitting together, you know, arm, arms over shoulders and everything. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I go, I go, that, that's great. I still have some of my original original uh, things from back then because you yeah. know when we we get older we want to go back and we want to buy all the stuff that we had as as kids to bring back those memories yeah yeah you, you can't know, you I, can't see my uh you can't see my desk at the minute you can't see the uh the um thousands or what i tell my wife hundreds that i've spent on uh, <laughs> plastic nonsense that does not matter but um makes me happy to look at <laughs> yeah well i'm i'm surrounded and as you probably saw earlier you can probably make out like a little bit here and there uh, it looks like I'm in a warehouse because I'm in a uh, refurbished factory, and I've got a I've got a 2,400 uh, square foot loft. But back in 20 beginning of 2016, uh, I fell ill. I had uh, sepsis, cellulitis, and fasciitis, and I died. Whoa! It's just a flesh wound. I'm better now. Uh, <laughs> I just don't hear that phrase every day. That's all I died. <laughs> and uh, well, they they brought me back a couple of times, and then I, you know, I coded out uh, when I was in the ICU because they would they would take the tube out of my throat, and I'd be okay for a little while, and I'm nothing, and they'd do a a trach on me right here. Yeah, yeah. But because of I had like three 18 inch scars going down my right leg. Yeah one on each side and one on the back. And uh, the wounds were about that wide. Yeah. So they were, they were changing, you know, they were changing bandages like every like four or five hours, which, yeah. you know, which hurt like hell. But they had me on a double morphine drip. Morphine is not my friend. Right. I was hallucinating for the entire time. <laughs> And I was I was paralyzed from the waist down at the time, yeah. and I couldn't move my legs, but I still had that that nerve impulse feeling. So I thought I was moving my legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had to put like the security stuff on on the uh, on the hospital bed they had me in because I kept trying to get up and and you know reach for the closet where my clothes were and and get the hell out of there. I oh, couldn't man. walk. Yeah. Oh, and God. Then, then they eventually tied me to the tied me down, you know, fastened me down to the bed because, uh, yeah. you know, after three or four, you know, escape attempts of me just just making a big thud on the floor, yeah, you know, oh, God. <laughs> and then they they freaked out one day. I actually thought I was the Joker killing Harley Quinn. Okay, <laughs> and I thought I was ripping her throat out. 
In actuality, I grabbed my trach and I ripped oh, it God, out of my right. throat and I threw it across the room. All right. That set off some, some alarms. Like 30 doctors came in. I go, what is it, free golf day today? <laughs> Can you breathe? I go, I'm friggin' talking to you, ain't I? <laughs> and they patched me up. And that, that was like the up up curve of my uh, my healing. But my good friend at work uh, had, been, when I was in the coma, packed up all my stuff, my daughter's stuff, my mother, who had passed away a couple years prior, packed mm-hmm. all the stuff up and put it in storage at his house. And I just got it back a couple of weeks ago. It filled a 22 foot long trailer. Oh, God. <laughs> so I've been trying, you know, trying to, uh, you know, work in a warehouse, you know, as, as a cripple has some, uh, you know, strange <laughs> things, but it's been letting yeah. me make out, make what's in the box videos. Like, repeatedly <laughs> because I have no idea what's in any of these boxes. Like I'll peek in them and I go books. Okay. I can make one for that toys. Oh, okay. And everybody wants to see, you know, what toys you have. Are you selling yeah. that? Uh, I don't know. You got cash, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I find if I'm in, in a situation where <coughs> um, uh, we, we basically cleared out one of our rooms recently to make a bit more room for my son. Mm-hmm. And um, the the amount of storage uh, that I've had to pay for just to take oh, the, yeah. the crap that I had in that room is insane. And as I'm putting the boxes in storage, thinking, just get it out of my sight. Well, I've got stuff to do. I've got to finish this thing. I've got to work. I'll just put this box down. Oh, God, is that a Transformer? Oh, I better get that out and play with that for four hours. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's dangerous because I'm, I'm, I'm finding stuff that I had 30 years ago, and I've realized... I think I bought one of those a couple of weeks back for a stupid amount of money, and I've actually still got one. I just didn't know. So it's dangerous going near the old boxes. It's probably best just to chuck everything away and hope for the best. Yeah, I know. I know one of these boxes actually has one of the original old uh, Mego Star Trek Enterprise bridge play sets. (laughs) Right. Great. Like, I had one when I was a kid. My mother gave all my stuff away. Um, I had, like, the you know, I had I had the GI Joes when it was just one GI named Joe. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not like seventy five thousand characters. Yeah. All little. <laughs> uh, but I had, I had, and you know, because I was a ginger. Yeah, me too. And now, now I'm just you know a bald gray guy, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm loving it too. Yeah, finally a different color. Yeah, I know. And I didn't have, you know, find me a different color I didn't have to pay for. Yeah. You know, my my daughter's found, mother goes, I'm it. going to the store. You want me to pick you up some just for men's? I'm like, for what? For your hair. What hair? Yeah, exactly. You still, you still have stuff? some You still have some hair. I go, yeah, I also got some baba clippers in the bathroom. As soon as it starts to grow out a little bit, I shave my head. <laughs> he goes, why do you keep shaving your head? I go, because it makes me look young. Being bald makes me look younger than you know a mat full of gray. <laughs> I, I I should have shaved mine for this because uh, I I've got a bizarre pattern on the top of my head, which where I've got a massive big patch of 
thick, strong, glorious hurt, and then just like nothing around it. But it's in like a weird shape. It's like a the Sesame Street guy painting letters on people's heads there and stuff. Is. Um, oh, here he is. He's back again. Hello, I'm Mr. Hello, Mike. Welcome back. I'm sorry about that. You, you know why you have that patch of hair up there? It's because of uh, that bloody this... scar. <laughs> <laughs> We, uh, we're we... doing the scene from Jaws where we start showing yeah. our scars to each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would, but I can't lift my leg high enough for the camera to see. <laughs> Apparently, he wins, Mike. He's got the. It's like it's that thick and it's that long, and chicks dig scars. So always remember that. Oh, scar. Okay, I was going to leave you two guys to it, but okay. Well, you know, <laughs> if, if you can find me a chick that digs my scars, let me know. <laughs> I'll I'll pay for shipping. <laughs> so we did. Are we, we still did talking about comics? I think so. Uh, I think so. Hey, we've been, uh, we did we, we, we've been keeping everything out, geeky, out. but we, you know, we we get to talk. You know, a little bit toys and you know, yeah. very you know, various influences. And if you watch it back later on, mate, you'll you'll be glad you missed it. It was basically us banging on about what plastic crap we waste our money on. Oh yeah, I I don't buy anything. <laughs> he, he builds it all. Shh, don't turn around. <laughs> Mike's middle name is Davros. <laughs> so we're down to the final issue of the book, and when does that hit uh, stands? Good question. Uh, uh, Couple of weeks, right? It's um, well, I was track of time on lockdown. Yeah, I got my issue seven uh last week, so yeah, I think it hit comicology about two or three weeks ago. So it's um, yeah, listen to all the experts at the marketing. I know we're useless. Lizzle, no, Lizzle, Lizzle put a link in, but as soon as it appears, but yeah, we should be about a week away, I think. Yeah. And how, how was it, uh, you know, without spoilers, of course, uh, how was it like mapping out to end at the, uh, end at the eighth issue? Um, because we've done it before, um, there was a lot less panic this time. Um, I th think trying to wrap everything up, you suddenly realize about issue six or seven as you're writing them. That you've you've created a lot of little story avenues that you need to go down and tie any loose ends up with. Um, usually, do that just by killing anyone <laughs> who gets in the way. Uh, where is his story going? Well, we kill him. We don't need to worry about that too much. But uh, this one was a, a, a lot more um, planned out in advance. Uh, the, the characters didn't get away with uh, from me as much. So. Um, I knew from issue one uh, that we were going to go to a different planet this time, and I knew what was going to happen there. And I wanted to put some callbacks into uh, one of John's favorite movies again. Um, there's a, a movie called The Trollenberg Terror from the 50s, which is a, a 
great black and white sci-fi movie let down by horrendous special effects but what's great about the movie is you only see the monster for the last five minutes or so and it and it's a terrible terrible looking monster but uh, up until that point it's all build up it's all character and we wanted to do some throwbacks to that and it was a big influence on the first book as well so we got to do that again and then i also wanted to do um a little throwback to uh dark star because um the first book, uh, some of the, the keener readers picked up that it's set in the same uh, nebula, that uh, region of space. Um, and there's a, there's a few other elements in there that, that if you read it very closely, you'll notice that we, we may or may not be in the same universe as, uh, as John's Dark Star movie, which is one of my favourites. Um, and we, we didn't really know how, how that would, would play out too much early on in the first book, so it, it was very subtle. Um, but in the second book, we, we really wanted to kind of put a stamp on that and say, yeah, we, we are in the same universe, even though it's a very different kind of story. Um, so so we, we, we brought in one of the elements from, uh, from Dark Star and, and we, we, we dropped that in the book uh, this time um, just to kind of tick that box. Um, but it, it was mainly just working out. We just had to get everything lined up so that um, when, when things start to unravel, I think both books, the, the feedback we've had from readers is that they're a little bit of a slow burn at the beginning. And then when the wheels start coming off, like it, 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 it picks up and, and it's kind of like one bad thing after another happening to everyone, um, which was the plan. You know, we wanted to be a, a roller coaster, but we wanted that, that final dip to be the, the, the one that not everyone walks away from. So, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And you kind of just, you know, gave him some notes of okay this this one dead on page 12 this one dead on page 14 well I, well i get i get to we forget that um i i get to read it uh, in a different format of course but i get to read it mm -hmm. from a fan point of view as well uh, mike sends me the script and it's it's been formulated by him and put together by him so when i read it i'm reading it as somebody who knows the story is involved with the characters. I mean, I've, I've, I say these guys, I've worked with these guys, the characters in it for years now. And I wouldn't say like I'm massively attached, but I've been doing well, their facial not anymore. expressions. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> but I've been working on their facial expressions and, and what's going on in their lives for, for years now. So there's, I was surprised at how much of an emotional connection I've got to not wanting to see bad things happen to these people. So when the final script come in, I don't know if you do this, but I do this with uh, streaming TV shows and with comics, um, and especially with stuff that my, my baby son watches. But I'm tempted every so often to just tap that little button and see how much is left on the scroll bar because I start thinking, they've only got six minutes. What are they going to do in that six minutes? How are they going to resolve this? And I start to get excited towards the end of a book knowing that I'm at this point in the story and if I can figure out how it finishes, it's not as exciting. If I have no idea how it's going to end, I get excited about the story. And I'm getting to, I'm literally at page like 20 or something of the last issue. And I'm going, what's he doing? What? How's, how's that going to go there? And who's going to go, how's he going to resolve this when this is happening on the second to last page? Um, and then we hit the last page. And I don't mind saying, I'm a bit emotional when, I, when I'm reading it. And of course, when you read it the first time, you immediately visualize 
what it is that you've you you, you get your first visualization of what that page is going to be like and i think my visualization was it was different from mike's on that last page and it was the only one that we've ever he's written something and said uh no i had a thing in mind and i visualized it but there's a few sort of panels around what's going on i'm not saying what's going on but i couldn't make that work i, I couldn't get that last page to work because the emotional hit it gave me in the script it, it wasn't giving me in my own work and i knew what the that image want, needed to be i just couldn't get it on the page and eventually mike said no actually i actually see it working this way those panels don't go there they're going to go there and uh and it just clicked and i thought right, i know that i'm going to work on this i know that i'm going to produce something to help this book finish but it still felt like i was reading it and it felt like i was getting the benefit of reading it and enjoying the story so when it clicked on that last page i did a proper Burt Reynolds in Smoking the Bandit 2, you know, like looking around for the, the fourth wall camera to see if anyone else just saw that as well. I'm like, you seen this? Have you seen this? You know, um, <laughs> it was just a real enjoyable way to, to finish working on the book, to, to have a surprise, an ending that wasn't just a surprise, but a very, very satisfying way to see what's gone on with those characters. I think that's what's nice about having the shared um, interests for and, and being friends for so long as well, is because... We don't just reference uh, horror and sci-fi, although obviously we do that a lot. It's, um, you know, there's an early sequence uh, with a, a spaceship leaving Earth and, and with uh, the authorities in pursuit. So it, it seems natural to, when I mention it to Dave, that panel where like, well, we're going to go Smokey and the Bandit with this. And he gets exactly what I'm aiming for because we're both thinking about the exact same sequence from a film we saw, you know, when we, when we were younger. Um, and we do that a lot, and it was the same with the last page. We 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 just had to start talking about um, not necessarily a, a similar sci-fi or horror ending, but just a movie that gave us the same kind of like kick, um, you know, emotionally. That, that until we 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 were seeing it in the same light. Um, you can tell them, Mike. It was it was love. Actually, we, we can reveal that now. Um, you can tell them. You don't need to be shy. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> but but that you know that, that happens a lot with with the stuff that we do because i mean i i, I don't think i'm uh, embarrassing dave by saying he, you're not the biggest western fan in the world whereas i i'm a huge western fan and um you know we've done two western um shorts now for for sandy and john yeah. and um so again like with, with some of it i i have to you know say well here's here's a sequence from uh, you know a, a sergio leone movie or um, this is the kind of thing I was going for here from a from a, a Kevin Costner film or whatever. But mm. mostly the character stuff it, it doesn't come from westerns. It, it, it comes from the other stuff that we that we've seen, whether that's you know Aliens or Reanimator or whatever that we're, we're, we're trying to go for. So it's just mm. nice to have that that kind of shorthand with each other. It, it, again, it's it's we we make a lot of reference to movies here, and we realise that we are talking about comics and stuff. But um, I've I can't deny I've always been a fan of, of how the two mix because, like I said before about the Alien comic, I, I see that as a... Um, I was talking before, Mike, sorry. When you, um, mm -hmm, sorry, I'll catch up. Um, the Alien adaptation, uh, Archie Goodwin yeah. and Walt Simonson, and how, as much as I love the movie, uh, the version of the story in my head is probably that because I just absolutely read it to bits, um, literally, my first copy of it. Um, and so I think the two are informing each other 
uh, and especially when um, our entire childhood wasn't all comics and it wasn't all movies. It was a mixture of all kinds of things. There's, there's influence on TV there as well and, and books and music even. Um, and I think embracing all that stuff, this is like we talked before about using Photoshop and working digitally. Um, I just got to a point in my life where I thought I'm trying to work traditionally and I know I'm not as fast as I could be in working in Photoshop. And I just got to embrace the things that have made me up until that point and influenced me. And we just very, very easily decided we know a lot about film. So we're going to drag this into to what we're doing. And of course, it being for the brand of John Carpenter, it, it, it's found a home there, if that makes sense, um, because that's what he's associated with. Um, despite the fact that he's got millions of comics out, um, that's how we know John Carpenter. So bringing films into it, it doesn't feel like a chore, you know. No, and I think it's one of the things of it's one of the things of t talking with John and Sandy as well because we don't discuss their work much. I mean, it obviously comes up, um, and and I'm a huge fan, so um, I, I I try and have those conversations. But when it comes to the work we're doing together, um, we we talk about everything but John Carpenter films. To be honest, we we, we talk about the stuff that that uh, that influenced him or um, other things that the you know that, that they've admired, um, and. It, we end up in the same place, but we've come via a different route. So I think it's it's very satisfying and gratifying when when readers say that it reminds them of something that, that John's done previously. Um, but at the same time, I think if we sat down and we just tried to do the thing again or, um, you know, uh, Prince of Darkness or, or, or whatever it was that, that, that we were aiming for, um, it, I don't think it would be satisfying because we, we, we try and start really from from the ground up we 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 don't try and build on what john's done before we start in a different place and i think in the same way that we, with john's movies that you know he he goes back to, to to westerns and and the stuff that that he loved and you end up with a movie like um escape from new york or um assault on precinct 13 or ghosts of mars they all have those elements of, of the stuff that he loved, you know, John Wayne movies and, and, and sieges and, and, uh, mm -hmm. and horror movies that uh, black and white sci-fi. Um, but I think it's the one thing you can look at throughout, throughout his career is he doesn't, he doesn't repeat himself. Uh, and, and it's the same with, with the books. We don't set out to make something um, very similar that, that the fans will instantly think we're, it's just a rehash of something that, that John's done before, which we try and make everything um, unique in some way. And that always comes from the characters as well. Like the, the situations are kind of crazy and the, the far-flung space stuff. Um, but the, the, the characters share a common theme, I think, in this and, and the other shorts that we've done, where it'd be the Westerns or the, the other bits and pieces. You know, it's it's just putting interesting people in situations that are going to test them, um, and, uh, and 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 just sometimes they. It's not that they fail that test; it's just that they're outmanned, outgunned, whatever, whatever it is. But they, you know, they go out trying. And I think that's a, a big part of the John Carpenter universe. You know, the the underdog and going down swinging is is a, a big yeah. element of it. I think, but the, I think the horse one, always one, lives. God damn that horse! <laughs> but yeah, it, but I think that that um, uh, there's a point to go on from what Mike said there, and I noticed this more and more because I've got this four-year-old in the house. But there's something uh, really primal and, and fun about uh, taking 
characters that you want to create a story with, taking um, a scenario and dropping it into an environment that would make it more fun. So would the thing be anywhere near as interesting if it was set in an office? Um, there's something about the the snow and Antarctica that it's a character that adds to the, to the story. Um, and knowing that this is a science fiction thing, you know, you've pretty much got a blank blank canvas. But we in, we really enjoyed, I know I did when I'm making the artwork um, and designing stuff, uh, the fact that this is quite grounded sci-fi. Um, yes, we're, we're involved with um, alien beasties and whatever else, and it does get kind of crazy in uh, some of the later issues. But we're still in what we would hope is a, a universe that people can relate to. And it's it's like taking your characters and classic storylines, you know, people who are living with guilt and people who are in, in dropped into situations they might not want to be in, but they're going to do their job and they're going to do it to the best ability they can. Stuff that people relate to and saying it's on an alien asteroid or it's on a, a, a planet that does this or whatever. Um, it's just fun knowing that it's like kids playing with toys. Oh, I've got a car, but what if I took it on the beach? It'd be brilliant. Or what if it went in the snow? That'd be really cool. And that's as much fun for us as adults, you know, as, as it is for kids playing with toys and moving them around. And yeah. um, I've got like to admit, that. one of my favorite one of my favorite panels in in uh, in Vortex Two Point is uh, a very simple idea. It's it's like Dave's great at creating these spaceships that don't exist and and uh, working out what they look like and how how vast you know some of the spaces are inside and we've got a new space station in this book that's much bigger than the first one and i was trying to work out well how do you, you know we, we've got to move around inside of it and you know the i guess if if i was entrenched in nothing but sci-fi i'd be thinking about flying cars or maybe some kind of futuristic transit system like they have in logan's run or you know something like that but we i ended up settling on um an old american jeep from kind of like World War Two and, and Korea, because I'm a big fan of MASH. And um, a, the, the panel that, when Dave sent it through, the, the initial pencils, the, the, the way that he'd captured <laughs> a Jeep moving through a, through a space station uh, is just one of the, the, the best things I've ever seen. And it's, I love stuff like that. One of the first things we did um, a few years ago, um, you know, again, far from reaches out of space with giant robots um and we, we just had a squirrel in a robot's hand and it, it it's those moments for me those little kind of touches that, that as dave says kind of keep us based in in a reality that we know where they'll still have squirrels they'll still be using old-fashioned mechanical jeeps because they work they're easy to assemble and disassemble and, and get out there and do things in so yeah it's a lot of fun doing that we're supposed to have flying cars by now but here we are with the uh... The Nissan Note. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not exactly the future yet. <laughs> it, it can't be. We haven't gone outside yet. No, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys so much for uh, coming on and talking all this time about the uh, the book and your career and influences. And, uh, no, you know, thanks for having us. Little, little piece okay, of mate. plastic. Enjoyed little, it little pieces of plastic and uh and and what have you um yeah enjoyed it thanks mate thanks for having us you know i gotta gonna tell everybody to uh to make sure they if they haven't bought it yet get all the issues 
You can have your your local shops uh, back order them. Take about a week to get them in. And I mean, Vortex 2.0. It's a great story. It blew me away. Made me say holy fuck a whole bunch of times. That's what we like. That's so what we like. It, it it did its job. It's and uh, the art's okay. <laughs> no, the art's great. <laughs> The art, the art is fantastic. I'll tell Tim. I'll tell Mr. Bradstreet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I was Come talking about the covers. <laughs> the, the cover, cool. The Thanks cover, very much. Thanks for having us. The covers are amazing. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, have a great night. Uh, the, the audio yeah, version of this will be up, and I'll, I'll, I'll send in that, uh, that email over to Liz so it'll be tagged to both of you for, uh, for Twitter and Facebook. Awesome. Awesome. Sweet. Thanks, Looking bro. forward to it. Thank All you. Right. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great Cheers, night. Dude. You too. Take care. Thanks again. Cheers.